We want to say good morning to you this today. It is good to be in God's house today. And we want to join our hearts and our voices today, minds and bodies, with a larger congregation scattered all over this country and beyond the ocean as well. To all of the Israelites, right, left, center, everybody here, and everyone that will join us from everywhere. We are a covenant people who love and worship a covenant God who began His grand and glorious work with our forebears, Abraham and Sarah. And what a marvelous work that wonderful covenant God has accomplished. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, with humble hearts, we remind ourselves, as Scripture tells us, that except it be given from heaven, a man can know nothing. And we are also reminded that we know nothing as we ought to know it. We are also reminded, Father in heaven, that the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. We humbly ask now, Father in heaven, for your wisdom, without which we are a tinkling cymbal and a sounding brass. O blessed Christ, the blessed name of our Savior, we plead for your invigorating, loving mercy and grace upon this congregation and upon all Israelites everywhere who are humbly confessing and looking to the heavens for help. We know that our help cometh from God, Jehovah the Almighty. We humbly ask, Father, that you direct this lesson to your purpose and your glory. We pray that you will be the master in charge of all the controls. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, we want to thank you for coming this morning and for sharing in what the Bible actually does call the foolishness of preaching. I've often wondered about that. The Bible calls the idea of preaching the foolishness of preaching. So if you'll turn your Bibles today to the book of Genesis, we're going to begin in Genesis number 17. Genesis number 17. And we're actually going to be continuing with the American Miracle Part 2. With this added line on that title. The American Miracle Part 2. The Planting of a Covenant Nation. 
We are a covenant nation. We are a covenant people. We are born out of a covenant marriage. Every marriage is a covenant sealed before our Father. We are baptized into a covenant. That's why children are baptized. Abraham signed his son Isaac into a covenant. We sign our children into a covenant. Two people get married, they become part of a covenant. When young people are confirmed, they are renewing the covenant. Renewing the covenant made in their name by those who are their covenant heads. We are then truly a covenant people. And let's start our lesson today on the American Miracle Part 2 by looking at Genesis 17, verse 1. And we will stop at verse number 8. Thank you for joining me in the reading. So if all boys and girls are there, boys and girls, raise your hand if you're with me. I don't see very many hands, boys and girls. I want your Bibles open by mother and daddy. And here we go. Everybody reading. And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord Jehovah appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. The word Almighty, Almighty there is El Shaddai. Or some people would pronounce it El Shaddai. El Shaddai, and it means breasted one. It's all sufficient. What it really implies is that just as a child nourishes from its mother's breast, so do God's children, so does our Father in heaven nourish his children. And the word El Shaddai, El Shaddai is the mo one of the most intimate words for God in Scripture. Because it's saying that God himself nourishes me in my faith and walk through this world. I am almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. Let's resume at verse 2. And I will make my covenant between me and thee, and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Stop. Now this is a very, very important statement in Scripture. Remember, every word in the book of Genesis is laying a plot, a seed plot for the rest of the story called the Bible. Every movie, a good one, has a plot. The plot unfolds as the movie unfolds. 
The plot of truth that the Bible is comprised of begins in the book of Genesis. Abraham is to be the father of many nations. Now, when you get to the new covenant, and a lot of theologians forget this, when Jesus told his disciples, go ye therefore and baptize all nations, what nations do you think he's talking about? He's talking about the very nations that are going to be descended from the man he made the covenant with, which is the story of the Bible. And people who take that wonderful, beautiful story and try to apply it or make it applicable to the whole world have just shot themselves in the theological foot. So sad. And even sadder for the parishioners who are so misled by a theology of such inclusiveness that no one is left out. And today they call that the Rainbow Coalition. But that's not the story of the Bible. Abraham was to be the father of many nations. And among those nations, there is to be a singular great nation. Not that all nations from Abraham are not important. But there's to be a, an exceptional, singular nation. And there's also to be a company of those, those nations that come together to form the greatest single empire in history. And it's not to disparage all the other nations that will descend from Abraham through his son Isaac, the child of promise, and then through Jacob. Now remember, as you read the story of the Bible, church, the story of the Bible is an amazing story. It's about Abraham and Sarah and the adventure that God took them on to build nations, kingdoms in this world. It's a remarkable story. It's a story that really never grows old because that story encompasses a Savior called Jesus Christ who confirmed the Abrahamic covenant with his blood. His own blood, Jesus, confirmed every promise made to Abraham. Let's read on in verse number 5. Neither shall thy name be called Abram, but thy name shall be called Abraham. We're going to put an ha sound in there, H-A, Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. Now watch carefully. Thank you for keeping your reading going. Boys and girls, I don't want to lose you. And I will make thee exceeding fruitful. And I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. Now, <clears throat> how many of you know that God didn't make that promise of kings to any other people? Kings shall come out of thee. 
God forbid the preachers today who are celebrating the 75, 75th anniversary of the counterfeit state of Israeli. Israeli. It's a counterfeit state. Never was Israel and never will be. But they're going to celebrate it all over the world because they believe it's the Israel of God. How shameful. What deception. Whoa. Reading on, verse number 6. And I will make of thee exceeding fruitful, will make nations of these, kings shall come out of thee, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee and their generations for an everlasting covenant. Oh, wait a minute. How long is the word everlasting? The word everlasting in the English is from the Hebrew root word olam, O-L-A-M. And it means vanishing point out of time, eternity forever. It's exactly what you think it means. Forever has no end. Verse 8. Did you notice now that this covenant was to follow Abraham's seed? Verse 8. And I will give thee unto thy seed after thee the land. Wherein thou where that, wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now the rest of this story about Abraham continues, but we wanted to start their church because the miracle of America is unknown apart from Scripture. And many, many souls today are unaware of the miracle that America represents in the fulfillment of the Bible. Our story today will pick up where we left off. In the early 1600s, America was really unsettled, unknown, unexplored largely, and was really uneven, not even known by the world as actually the most choice bit of real estate that God created under heaven. Now, I say that with a caveat because the promised land given to Abraham, God calls the glory of all lands. And that's found in Ezekiel chapter 18, I believe, unless I need corrected. The glory of all lands is not America. That's a title given to the future of God's throne and kingdom. But America holds singularly a prominent, a prominent place of exceptional standing among all the nations of the world. That is for sure. So in 1600, a shipload of people arrived called the Pilgrims in a ship called the Mayflower. Now, America had already been established with a 
colony called Jamestown in 1607. But the real beginning of America is 1620, because that's when the pilgrims landed, and that's when America was planted as a covenant land. That's when the covenant was made upon which America grew, developed, and was built. And the Puritans that followed them built upon that covenant calling with their own special, unique covenants that they were laying. Now, for the benefit of all parents here today, may I humbly suggest today that there is a very good motive for this lesson on the miracle of America. For in the year 1619, there occurred in the United States of America a plan to make the year 1619 the founding year of America. So by a raise of hands, how many of you are familiar with the 1619 project? One, two, three, four, five, six, six people, seven. Thank you. In August of 19, uh, correction, yes, in August of 19, uh, 20, 20, 2019. Did I get that right? August? I got to make sure that I have that date right. Yes. August 2019, there was a person awarded the Pulitzer Prize, one of the highest literary prizes in America, for a lengthy, detailed, historical essay that attempted to prove that America started in 1619 with the arrival of the first boatload of Negroes in Virginia. That 1619 project was then multiplied into a curriculum. The curriculum was then magnified all across the country. It happened through the American Department of Education, which might be one reason that Vivek Ramaswamy says, do away with the entire Department of Education. Just dissolve it. Cancel all the teacher unions. And maybe we will not have the lowest math and reading scores now in the world of the industrial up, uh, up you know, uh, the, the industrialized nations. We're now at the bottom of the heap, the dumbest children in the industrial part of the world. That's how good we're doing in teaching our children. Well, the 1619 Project was an attempt to completely destroy the foundations of this country's beginning. And beloved, I am duty-bound. I promise you before the God of heaven, I'm duty-bound to warn us as a body 
that unless we teach our children the truth, they're going to grow up in a culture that doesn't have a foggy notion of, of the love that they should have for the beginning of this country. Our children need to grow up to love their ancestors. We are standing today on the shoulders of the generations who have preceded us, and we better very well appreciate those generations and what they stood for, what they were willing to die for and bleed for and sing for and work for. Those were values that we dare not lose. And I'm trying to be calm, cool, and collected here, but it's hard. Because I become very angry when I think that they are trying to change the history of the country that our ancestors built. Things very shameful. Now this 1619 project took took it grew legs. It grew wings. Hey folks, it made its way into all the public schools of this country. In one way or another, it's getting there. And that's going to be the history of the children passing through the fool system called the public school system. When Trump was elected, he heard about this 16 project, this, uh, 20, this 1619 project. And in... Uh, in the last year of his presidency, he defunded it. He thought it was outrageous that our American children were being taught that their country did not begin with the pilgrims in 1620. And he was outraged, like many, many Americans were, when he discovered that they said in the 1619 project that the American War of Independence was waged to preserve the institution of slavery. Not for freedom, but to preserve slavery. And our people, that included, I believe his name is Victor Hansen. Some of you know Victor Hansen, I believe a wonderful outspoken American. And I just want to read you what Victor Hansen had to say about the 1619 Project. He had some very, very interesting comments to make. And uh, he said, Victor Davis Hansen said, and I quote, the 1619 Project does not care about the truth, instead hires and promotes its reporters and editors on woke, race, gender criteria, rather than proving any kind of reportable historical excellence. Great numbers of Americans weighed in on that. 1619 project. But the problem, it was already well funded with tentacles everywhere in the large urban schools and now it's filtering down into the smallest schools. 
because the fundamental goal is to destroy white history in America. And every person associated with it is going to be besmirched. One of the very first acts of the tyrant now in the White House, on day number one, January 20, 2021, he canceled Trump's order to cease and desist the funding of the 1619 Project. So, beginning in January 2021, it was refunded and now it's going gangbusters. That is one of the, the very principal reasons that I'm talking about the miracle of America today. And gladly so, because we ought to love this country. When the Mayflower left shore in England, folks, I don't know if I would have been, if I'd been living, whether I'd had the courage to board that vessel. We're going to be on the high seas for 66 days. We're going to be cramped up in a vessel that's only 20 feet wide, 25 feet wide at the, at the bottom of the hole where the passengers are. It's about 102 feet long, and that's much narrower than this sanctuary, and it's not as long. And into those quarters, we're going to put 102 people. Three of the ladies aboard that ship are with child. And inside the walls of the Mayflower, there will be no restrooms. In one corner of each end or the other will be a slop bucket which will be the latrine, emptied only when the ship was not rocking. The vomit buckets were scattered everywhere because people were vomiting all the time. Somebody in the crowd was always vomiting. One child was born in that ship for privacy, they held a blanket around the mother and everybody heard her cries. For hygiene, good luck. You're going to practice hygiene in the, in the midst of 102 people. Good luck. This country was born in tremendous sacrifice by God-fearing Christian men and women, boys and girls. Can you imagine a, a mother with child aboarding that ship? That's almost more than I can fathom, but they did. They did because there is, a re there is a spirit in the breast of the Anglo-Saxon people that 
says we can do all things through God, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Nothing with God is impossible. What a generation. What a generation. The food aboard the Mayflower. Don't know how I'd handle it. Salt pork. Dried meats, including cow tongue. Pickled foods. Oatmeal separated out from worms that you had to separate. Cereal products that were often moldy. The passengers lost, on average, 25% of their body weight in the 66 days aboard the Mayflower. It's hard to believe how deprived the deprivation that those people endured. Now, I didn't know this, but according to all that I can find and research on the subject, on days when the ocean currents were turbulent, the ship often was taken backward. They would be, they would be forced backward a ways. And then they go forward and then backwards. So it was a very tumultuous voyage. Halfway through the voyage, the main beam cracked, which sent consternation through the congregation. Would they all drown? Would that, would that ship break apart? Now, some thoughtful Anglo-Saxon builder, carpenter type, had thought to bring the kind of screws to repair that main beam, which they went to work and repaired, and it held together through the course of the voyage. One child was born aboard the Mayflower. He was a boy, and his parents aptly named him Oceanus. O-C-E-A-N, ocean, and then added an, an U-S on the end. Now, little Oceanus survived the ride. He lived for quite some time, but he died of pneumonia the first winter they were there. Now, the tossing of the Mayflower was at times so violent that people were thrown around, which also induced part of the, the vomiting. I only mention these things, people, because the enormity of the sacrifices that were endured by the early builders of this country, the tale has never been fully told. We will never know it. We will never know the anguish and the cries of mothers that de delivered children in the worst possible conditions. Nor will we ever know those who froze to death in the, in the deprivation of winter. Or even of those who starved to death. Now in the unfolding days of the development 
of America, you know that the Puritans followed the pilgrims. And the Europeans that followed the Puritans beyond the British Isles that came from Scotland, Ireland, Scandinavia, all the countries of Europe, France, Germany, and all the rest, so many other countries. They came in successive waves, speaking different languages, but they all believed in the same God. In their language, they knew He was Jesus Christ, the Son of God. They all came believing that the Bible was God's divinely inspired word. And upon that rock, America was welded into a white Protestant nation. The Anglicans settled in Virginia. The Puritans settled in Massachusetts. The Baptists settled in Rhode Island. The Dutch Reformed settled in New York, I mean New York. The Swedish Lutherans settled in Delaware, New Jersey. The Catholics settled in Maryland. Quakers in Pennsylvania. Congregationalists in Connecticut and New Hampshire. And the Anglicans again in North and South Carolina. And Georgia welcomed... Baptists, Anglicans, and everybody. So the Georgians were a more hospitable people. Some of those other colonies frowned if you were not part of their religious tribal belief. But America was welded together as a white Protestant covenant land. And all the charters of these original colonies reflected their belief in Christ, Jesus, and the Bible. And those who say America had no Christian beginning are in la-la land. They are liars, and we have a lot of liars in our generation. In fact, I think we may be known as the most prolific lying generation in history. Now, I probably would be challenged by that who grew up under the Bolshevik communist in Russia because I'm sure that layers of lies were unfolding then. Marxism loves lies. When the early Americans came here, they were greatly influenced by the Protestant fathers of the Reformation. Among all the shining examples of the Reformation fathers, you know them as Martin Luther, Huldrych Swingley, you know them as John Knox, Thomas Cranmer, and many others, but there was one who stood prominently above the others in the influence that he impacted upon America. And I find it very interesting that in a lot of the literature of even our own people, of all the Reformation fathers, this is the one they love to target 
as being a Jew and as being someone we ought to look with disfavor upon. You know what I found out to be true? That he actually, by many historians, is called the father of the religious nature of America, and that's John Calvin. And he has been the brunt of a lot of criticism as you, criticism as you so well know. Between 1776 and 1790, no less than nine American states required that a person be a Protestant Christian believer before they would let you hold office. You could not be a candidate for office unless you took an oath of allegiance of your faith in that particular colony. Delaware required that you subscribe to the Trinity before they considered you, I guess, intelligent enough to trust with government. Pennsylvania required that you believe in the divine inspiration of the Bible or you don't hold public office. Now here's what I, I would like to, you know, there's so much information, like standing over here at Stockton Lake with a teacup, and dipping out the lake, just, it's overwhelming. So there's a lot of information. But in the 156 years that expired between the landing of the Pilgrims, 1620, and the American War of Independence, in that 156 years, I want you to think something. Most Americans think of America as beginning with George Washington and Martha and, and, and all that wonderful story. But that's, that's 156 years after the Pilgrims. Why don't you and I think about the three 40-year segments of time between the Mayflower 1620 and the signing of the Declaration of Independence. That's roughly 160 years. That's three times 40. Or if we break that up into 20-year segments, which a lot of demographic-minded people do, that would be 80, correction, eight segments of 20 years each. So that would be like, today I count from 1960 to where we are now, roughly three generations, 20-year generations. But that's just the way I look at it. But that's a long time, 156 years of foundation building. What we must know, church, and this is, you've got to hold on to this. You don't remember very much, remember this. The mold, the template, the character upon which America is going to unfold is in this 146 years. Correction, this 156 years. That's when the character of America was established. It's no less than the children you're raising. You know that by the time a child is five years old, their basic moral character is going to be set. It's going to be greatly modified, molded and, and amplified thereafter. But 
most of the, the beginning traits of the character are built in the first five years of life. And the character of this country was laid in those eight 20-year periods of 160 years between the Pilgrim's Landing and the American War of Independence. So when George Washington comes on the scene, my goodness gracious people, he's standing on the shore on the shoulders of eight successive 20-year generations of Christian ancestors. America was ripe to build a great nation. Because going into the War of Independence, we were still just a, a, a collection of independent little colonies of about three million plus people. So I mentioned that. Now, on the eve of the War of Independence, ask yourself this question. If the United States today was going to fight the entire world, we'd be overwhelmed. That would include Russia, China, India, Iran, and all the countries. Can you imagine a little confederacy of colonies waging war against the undisputed master of the seas? with the largest navy in the world, the largest standing army in the world, the richest nation in the world at that time was Great Britain. And these 13 little colonies are going to challenge that behemoth. It would be no less than little David going up to Goliath. The enormity of the price paid for our freedom was simply reduced to this statement, men chose death rather than slavery. Men chose to die, women chose to die rather to, than to live without their freedom. And today, we have millions of Americans that were willing to throw their freedom away with the announcement of a COVID virus. Yes, we'll wear a mask. We'll social distance. We'll stay home. We'll pull our children out of the public schools. That was good because it exposed what they were being taught. Mom and dad found out for the first time what their children were learning, and it scared the bejeejees out of them. They, it did when parents found out what their textbooks were teaching their children. If you're up to speed, you know what parents did about it. Tens of thousands. In fact, so many parents re rejected that teaching that they started going to the school boards. And Merrick Garland, our attorney general, through the FBI, said they were domestic terrorists. These are moms. These are soccer moms who were then called domestic terrorists. Because these mama bears have been robbed of their whelps. And they were angry, angry mamas. If you haven't listened to some of those mothers, 
And today there's a, there's a, a whole movement in America called, what is it called, Moms for Liberty? There's a whole, it's a whole big swelling tide of, I think there's several hundred thousand mothers that have organized to oppose those who want to destroy their children. They're going after these school boards in ways that are is just magnificent. God bless those ladies. So the American War of, of Independence is, is ready to, you know, it's going to be fought. But how in the world is those struggling little 13 colonies without a central government, without a means of raising any money except through voluntary means, unless they can coerce all their members, their colonial leaders to join together. But they're, they're very, very zealous of their freedom, and, and, and they don't want to do anything that's going to disturb that freedom, but they've got to fight a war if they want to have a continuation of their freedom. Now, we need a leader. To fight a war, you must have a trusted leader. Do we have such a man in America living in the 1700s? And we do. God had a Joshua in the wings. Isn't it amazing how God always has someone ready? Did God raise up an emancipator when Israel was getting ready to be delivered in Egypt? Who did God move upon to meet, greet, marry, kiss, and later have a child they named Moses? Moses was an extraordinary little baby. Back when he was born, his face shines so bright they didn't need a light in his cradle. But America had their Moses too. And his name was George. George Washington. And we're going to talk about George in a little bit. In fact, we might as well right now talk about George Washington. Born into a wealthy family in what state? Virginia. So what would his faith have been? Anglican. Good many of the signers of the Declaration of Independence and of the United States Constitution were Anglican. All familiar, very familiar with the Book of Common Prayer. George Washington was the eldest of six children born to Augusta and Mary Ball, his second wife. Augusta Washington was a very noble man of great heritage and ethnic genetics. He had three children by his first wife. One died early. Two sons 
And the eldest was named Lawrence Washington. And he figures very prominently in George Washington's life. George Washington is the firstborn of the second wife of Augusta Washington. So when George Washington was born, he was only 11 years old when his father, Augusta, Augustine, Augustine uh, Washington passed away. So that left George and all of his siblings and his mother, Mary Ball, as a widow. And at that point in time, George decided upon invitation to go live with his brother, Lawrence. Older brother, which he did. And that older brother was a good influence on George. They were both firstborn sons. Firstborn from one wife. The younger George were, was firstborn from Mary Ball. Now, when George was a young man, he didn't go to England to be schooled, as did most of the children of the wealthy at that time. They shipped them off to England to be educated. But they didn't do that with George. They kept him at the home in Lawrence, with Lawrence, his brother. And they tutored him by, they hired an Anglican priest to tutor George. And that Anglican priest taught him mathematics and every other subject that was taught in those days. But he taught him, among all the things, to be a moral, virtuous young man. And they had rules of civility. How do you behave in public? How do you conduct yourself as a man? How do you learn to walk as a masculine man? Every detail of masculinity was incorporated into George's teaching. So there was no stooping over, no slumping of shoulders. Uh, looking straight in the eye at the person you're shaking the hand of. All these little tiny rules of etiquette George had hammered into his head. But there were rules of moral behavior. How do you treat a young lady? How do you never take advantage of a girl? How do you show yourself a gentleman in front of a girl. Now those rules of civility, sadly, would be foreign language in America today. And it's not to our credit either. Now, in the time that I have left, which is very limited, George Washington was a Joshua in training. His entire life, he was a self-taught surveyor. At age 14, George had assembled the tools of a surveyor and was good enough at the trade that the local Virginia planters would hire him to survey land. When he was 17 years old, the state of Virginia licensed him as an official state surveyor. 
So George Washington was up and at it with a vocation before he ever said, Martha, will you marry me? So George Washington was not playing video games in his daddy's basement. He was not 30 years old trying to figure out what he was going to do with his life. In colonial America, girls married young. And men matured quickly. And they married youthfully. When their genetic seed was at its most virulent state. So they popped out children quickly. And they were young enough that they could absorb the crying. The younger you are, the better equipped you are to handle children. The older you get, the more irritating you are when you have to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning. But that's not part of this story. <laughs> Sorry. So we have George now coming on the scene. And... I don't have time left to tell you how George Washington made his name at age 22. But George Washington at age 22 became well known in colonial America. Up to that time he was just another young man. But after the age of 22... The name of George Washington became a famous name in colonial America. If we continue this series, we'll get into that. But I, I almost shed a tear when I found out some of the things that George Washington did as a young man. Because I learned more building this lesson that I will ever be able to communicate to you. But I want to say this in closing here this morning, church. That we today in this, in this building have an enormous task on our shoulders. Our children must become not unlike George Washington, a generation of men and women who will build a parallel culture in this decadent, dying America that will shine as bright as the light of sun in the, in the brilliance of day in the midst of this darkness. So that means... That we're going to have to put away the video games. That means we're going to have to become readers. We're going to have to find out our history. There's a variety of ways now that are available. There's some wonderful podcasts that you can learn quickly from. We're just going to have to become educated. I'm going to call it self-educated because there's no time in the world 
for us to waste. We just don't have any time to waste. We have a lot to gain by getting busy and being responsible children of God. So our young men need to grow up with meaning and responsibility so that they will be ready for a young lady to make a home for. And our girls need to be ready and domestically oriented so that they will be a very good fit for the young man who comes calling. And the only way we can do that is for parents with daughters to prepare them for marriage and for the fathers to encourage their young men toward vocational aptitudes and skills to provide a home for a young lady. Because the foundation of children and marriage and family and church in the midst of a dying nation is still God's template for survival of his remnant. So may God be praised today. And we will be standing now, and I won't pu push the button yet, Levi. Just hold on. I do not know if you people want, I am your servant. Do not know if you want to hear part three of the American Miracle. So if you, if you want to hear it, raise your hand. Okay, so... God willing, we'll continue at some future time. Shall we be standing?